Let's open our Bibles, please, to the book of Leviticus, the fourth chapter. Leviticus chapter 4. And this is the sin offering that we'll take up here. In fact, you'll find it in the last words of verse 3. But let's begin reading with verse 1. It says, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, If a soul shall sin through ignorance against any of the commandments of the Lord, concerning things which ought not to be done, and shall do against any of them, if the priest that is anointed do sin, according to the sin of the people, now, see, it's the children of Israel and the priest as well is concluded, then let him bring for his sin, which he hath sinned, a young bullock with, without blemish unto the Lord for a sin offering. I usually circle the offerings in each one. There's a sin offering here. We had a whole burnt offering in chapter 1. In chapter 2, we had uh, the meat offering. In chapter 3, we had the, uh, tres- the uh, peace offering. And now we've got the sin offering here. In chapter 5, we'll have the trespass offering. So let's continue reading. And he shall bring the bullock into the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before the Lord, and shall lay his hand upon the bullock's head and kill the bullock before the Lord. He was responsible for the death of this innocent victim. If you bring that over to the New Testament, we are sinners and we in turn are responsible for the death of Jesus. Now we may say that if we were there, we wouldn't have killed him. That may, that may be well and good. It may be true. It might have been like the repentant thief or like some of those that accepted Christ. But on the other hand, it was our sins that were laid upon Christ. So in that respect, we are responsible for Christ's death. Uh, and the priest that is anointed shall take the bullock's blood and bring it to the tabernacle of the congregation. And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle of the blood seven times before the Lord, before the veil of the sanctuary. And the priest shall put some of the blood upon the horns of the altar of the sweet incense before the Lord, which is in the tabernacle of the congregation. And shall pour all the blood of the bullock at the bottom of the altar of the burnt offering. That was outside, remember, when we studied the tabernacle. All the blood was to be poured out there. Which is at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. He shall take off from it all the fat of the bullock for the sin offering, the fat that covereth the inwards, and all the fat that is upon the inwards, and the two kidneys, and the fat that is upon them, which is by the flanks, and the call above the liver, and with the kidneys, it shall he take away, as it was taken off from the bullock of the sacrifice of peace offerings. The same process here. And the priest shall burn them upon the altar of the burnt offering. And the skin of the bullock and all his flesh with his head and with his legs and with the inwards and his dung, even the whole bullock shall he carry forth without the camp unto a clean place where the ashes are poured out and burn them uh, and burn him on the a wood with fire where the ashes are poured out shall he be burnt. Now then you have the same thing going on uh, down in verse uh, 13. That was the priest that was talking about. Now verse 13 says, And if the whole congregation of Israel sin through ignorance, see in verse 13, and then drop on down to verse 15, and the elders of the congregation shall lay their hands upon the head of the bullock. You see that in verse 15. And then on down, the last part of verse 18, shall pour out all the blood at the bottom of the altar of the burnt offering. The same process. And then you get down to 
27, and if any one of the common people sin through ignorance. So it takes in the whole spectrum from the priest, and then verse 13, the whole congregation as a unit, and then in verse 27, individuals, if any one of the common people sin through ignorance. And it tells you all that is to be done, the offering of the sacrifices there. Good to have you come in. Thank you. We are uh, studying in the fourth chapter of the book of Leviticus. If you have your Bibles, Leviticus chapter 4. And we're studying the sin offering. Now, there's some extra Bibles there in the hallway if you need another one or if you've got plenty, it's fine. We studied the burnt offering in chapter 1. And then we studied the uh, meat offering in chapter 2. And then in chapter 3, we studied the peace offering. And now, we're, I mean, yeah, chapter 3. And then chapter 4, we're studying the, the sin offering. And then in the chapter 5, we'll find the trespass offering. And there's a difference between the sin offering and the trespass offering. Now, we'll try to bring you up to date somewhat on this. It may involve some of the things we've already studied, but not a whole lot of it because we can't review all of it. But the sin offering stands in direct contrast to the burnt offering. Because in the burnt offering, all is for God. Remember in the first chapter, the whole burnt offering? It's all for God. And in the sin offering, all is for man. It's for our sin. And we gave you a verse of Scripture in the New Testament that shows you both of those offerings. Do you remember what it was? Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 2. Ephesians 5 verse 2. And I want you to see this. It says, And walk in love as Christ also hath loved us. Now look. And hath given Himself for us. That's a sin offering. For us. An offering and a sacrifice to God for sweet-smelling savor. So the sacrifice to God was a sweet-smelling savor that was the whole burnt offering. But for the sin offering, it's not a sweet savor offering. By the way, the first three offerings are called sweet savor offerings. It was acceptable to God and it was fragrance to God. The whole burnt offering and the meat offering, which typifies Christ in His life, His perfect life as manhood. And then the peace offering in chapter 3, all three of these were sweet savor offerings. And that which was burned upon the altar went up with fragrance and it had a certain frankincense and different things poured on it. Sweet smelling perfumes so that it would be an odor of sweet smell unto God. So in those you have the aspect of God being pleased with these offerings. And God accepting them as a sweet smelling savor. Now then... The last two, the sin offering that we're studying now, and then in chapter 5, the trespass offering, are non, we call them non-sweet savor offerings. Why? Because they have to do with our sins. And our sins cannot satisfy God. Christ's death for our sins satisfied God. But our sins are not a sweet odor to God. And when Christ was bearing those, well, uh, you don't find that, that that aspect of His death was not a sweet savor offering. Now then, let me tell you this though, that all these offerings speak of Christ. There was only one bloodless offering, and that was the meat offering. And the meat offering being a bloodless offering, it was symbolical of Christ's life. Because He didn't shed His blood in life, 
He shed His blood in death. But the burnt sacrifice, the whole burnt offering, chapter 1, and the peace offering, chapter 3, the blood was shed, and here in chapter 4, the sin offering, and chapter 5, the trespass offering, all of these other four are blood offerings, and they all had to... There was shedding of blood in every one of them. As I say, when you come to these last two, chapter 4 and 5, you have sin involved, and therefore... Uh, they're non they're called non sweet savor offerings. So that verse of scripture I gave you in Ephesians five verse two gives you two offerings at least. It gives you the aspect of Christ's death that has to do with him presenting himself wholly, completely to God, and for us as a sacrifice for our sins, the sin offering. And of course in the in that same offering, in that same sacrifice of his death. He made peace with God through the blood of His cross. We've already dealt with that in our last chapter. And that's Colossians 1 verse 20. It says, "...and having made peace through the blood of His cross, to reconcile things in heaven, things in earth, things under the earth, are reconciled by Christ's made peace by Christ's death on the cross." Now then, when we study this sin offering, I've given you enough background, I believe, to continue with our comments. So in the burnt offering, we have that all is for God. That's what I just said a minute ago. And in the sin offering, all is for man, for man's sin. Now, there were not separate deaths of Christ on the cross. There was one death, but all of these things were involved in His one sacrifice. So don't try to say, well, you know, He died here for, for the sin offering and He died for the whole burnt offering. It was all in His sacrifice. But all these aspects of these offerings are fulfilled in His one sacrifice. So you see that very plainly. Now, in the sin offering, we have a picture of Jesus Christ giving Himself as an offering and a sacrifice unto God for man. And so it's, it's an offering and a sacrifice to God, but it's for man. And the sin offering was for the sins of ignorance. By the way, man is a sinner whether he knows it or not. He's ignorant of the fact that he is a sinner. In fact, you find that the bulk of the world, even though they feel and know that they're not right, because God has written that on their hearts and minds, they still do not realize how great a sinner they are. They may say, well, you know, I, I, I'm a sinner. In the, I sin in the aspect that all men are, uh, you know, just like I am. Or that I'm not perfect. They may, may admit they're not perfect or something like that. But that's not what they need to recognize. They need to recognize that they are an out-and-out sinner whether they realize it or not. So in that, they're ignorant. Now, sin is deeper than the deeds that men do. Some people say, well, I don't do this and do that and do the other. They may classify themselves as one that's not a a drunkard or a harlot or a a rogue of some kind or a drug addict or whatever you might want to point out. They might say, well, I'm not that. That doesn't excuse you. You're something else as a sinner. So, sin is deeper than the deeds that men do. And sin is not only what a man does, but it's what a man is. It's what he is. He is a sinner. And uh, man was born with a nature to sin. The Bible tells us we have a sinful nature. And that nature is the root of all sin. That nature in man is the root of all sin. That's the the principle of sin that's within us. 
And then there's the practice of sin. That's sin that's committed. And so there's two different things you need to understand. Look in the book of 1 John, if you will. Chapter 1. The book of 1 John, chapter 1. And we'll give you something here that will help us to see the nature of sin, the principle of sin, and then also the sin that we commit. 1 John chapter 1, verse 7. It says, But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ His Son cleanseth us from all sin. Now look at verse 8. Here's the principle. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Now what is this? This is the principle of sin. This is not committed sin. If we say that we have no sin, that we're not sinners, that we have no sin principle, then it says we deceive ourselves. We have to admit that we're depraved and sinful by nature. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now look at verse 10. If we say that we have not sinned, that's sin committed. See that? That's... that's uh, Committed sin. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His Word is not in us. So you can see that the two aspects of sin are there. The principle of it and the, the practice of it. Principle and practice. Now then, when we uh, think of man having the nature to sin, uh, that man is not a sinner because he commits sin, but man commits sin because he is a sinner. Did you get that? He's not a sinner especially because he commits sin, but he commits sin because he's a sinner. We, it's just like, uh, say we have an apple tree out there in the field. Well, what makes that a, an apple tree is because it was an apple seed from which it grew. That's its nature to be an apple tree. And the fruit of that tree is apples because that's its nature. A pear the same way. Why does a dog bark anyway? Because he's a dog, right? Why does a cat go meow? See, their, their nature, uh, what they do indicates what they are. And so you can see it in all of animal creation and especially all of plant life. Why is it when you sow wheat in the field, you don't have oats or rye grow? Because you sowed wheat, right? And it brings forth of its kind. And man brings forth of his kind. What is his kind? A sinner. And therefore, the Bible says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So sin is deeper than the deeds that men do. And our Lord defines the source of sin. In Matthew 15, verse 19. Let me read a verse of Scripture here for you. In Matthew 15, and verse 19. Listen carefully. Jesus said, For out of the heart proceedeth... What? Out of the heart... And Mark says, out of the heart of men. Uh, Matthew here says, For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. But to eat with unwashed hands defileth not a man. So they were getting on to Jesus because uh, the disciples ate with... They hadn't washed their hands before they ate. But Jesus is showing that it's out of the heart that these evil things come forth. In the book of Ecclesiastes, it may be chapter 8, verse 12. I'm just guessing now because it's been a long time. But anyway, it's somewhere in Ecclesiastes. It says, because sentence against an evil work... Listen. Because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily. Therefore, the heart, one heart, the heart of the sons of men, many sons, 
is fully set in them to do evil. So men are of one heart, a sinful heart. Let me see if that's the right scripture. Ecclesiastes, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Let's see. Maybe it was eleven eight. It was eight eleven, I believe. Or eight. No, that's not the right verse. Uh, it's 8, 11. Is it 8.11? Yeah. Yeah, it is 8.11. I thought it was. But it says, because sentence against an evil work is not... Now look at it, if you have it before you. Is not executed speedily. Therefore the heart... Notice it says heart. Like all men are of one heart. The heart of the sons... That's plural. Of the sons of men. More than one one man. It doesn't say the heart of an individual man or one person. The heart of the sons of men is fully set in them, notice you have plural again, to do evil. So men are of a sinful heart and sinful nature. Of course, Genesis 6-5, the Bible tells us in the days of Noah that there was wickedness in the hearts of men. And he says in verse 5, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. He put them all together. And that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And he used this to show that that men are evil and sinful. So what we see here is something that has to do with dealing with uh, the hearts of men. Now, sin is sin, whether it be dormant or full-blown. It can be just dormant in the hearts of men, or it can be full-blown in in, uh, deeds that men commit. It can be full-blown in the minds and thoughts of men to the extent that they do the deeds. Remember what James says? It says, every man sins when he's drawn away with his own lust. Now look. Look at the process. James says, and lust when it hath conceived bringeth forth sin. So it has to be conceived. Men have lust, and thus when those lusts are conceived, they bring forth sin. The conception of lust brings forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, what does he say? Bringing forth death. And the Bible says that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 6, verse 23. So, uh, when we say sin is sin, whether it's dormant or full-blown, in, in violence and outbreaking of transgressions, or however it may be seen. Now, God's standard is holiness. The Bible says in Hebrews 12, verse 14, without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. You say, well, golly, that rules me out. But it says that that we might be partakers of His holiness in the same passage. So the holiness that we have is of God. God gives us that in our lives. That doesn't mean we're sinless. It means that He's made us sanctified to Him and separated to Him, and we're holy as far as God is concerned. And the Bible tells us we're to walk that way and live that way. It doesn't say we're to walk sinless. It says we're to walk holy. It says, be ye holy, for I am holy. Let me give you one in First Peter, I believe you can find it, that will show us that. First Peter chapter, chapter 1. First Peter chapter 1. Now look, let's begin reading with verse 14. It says, As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust in your ignorance. But as He which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. 
your whole walk of life devoted to God. Because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. Now, the word there doesn't say sinless, but the word actually means sanctified. It means separated unto God and devoted to God. It's not dealing with the fact that we're sinless creatures or Christians. It's dealing with the fact that we're separated to God and thus we're sanctified and made holy unto God. And that's one of God's requirements. And so, a lot of people back off when you mention that the Scripture says, without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. But it's talking about without God setting you apart and sanctifying you to live a new life, a Christian life. Let's continue with this now. So what we find is uh, the man who is an out-and-out sinner falls short of that standard. We know he does. We can see that. But the man who is perfectly moral falls short as well. We, you can see that the man that's an out-and-out sinner falls short of that standard that God has set. But, what, but the, the man who is perfectly moral falls short of that standard, not only because he is lacking in holiness, but because he has a nature to sin. That makes him in a situation to where he is a sinner regardless. He can be as morally right as he can be and try to treat people right. That's why you find people so deceived. They say, well, I don't rob anybody and I, I'm, not a, I, I'm not a thief and I'm not a, a drunkard and I'm not a drug addict and I'm not this and I'm not that and I'm not the other. Yes, but you're a sinner. See, we can all look to our lives, or many of us can, and look at some things we do not do as the outright sinner that's out here in the world that just never uh, does anything right and just living in sin day by day. But that doesn't justify us because we're all sinful and we're all sinners by nature. And so the man who is perfectly moral falls short of that standard, not only because he's lacking in holiness, but because he has this sinful nature. And there's a difference in men in respect to the degree of sin. Some men are deeper in sin, the degree of it, than others. But we're all sinners. That's why we all have to be saved by grace. Because we're all sinners by nature. And then we become sinners by choice. And the Bible says, for by one man, I think it's Romans 5 verse 12, for by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin, so that death has passed upon all men. For that, all have sinned. Now then, it's better... Of course, the man who lives moral and upright is, is living a commendable life for his own sake and for the sake of others. That's good for himself and for others. And it's better to be sober and honest and upright and ready to discharge all of our duties than to be an out-breaking uh, sinner. It's better for a man physically and materially. It's better for that man's conscience. And it's better also... For the community in which he lives. It's good. It has a lot of good aspects. But that man is short of God's standard of righteousness. See, the Bible says there is none righteous, no, not one. Uh, again, you go back in uh, the book of Ecclesiastes and Proverbs. Both of them speak of it in some way. But... One scripture says, There's not a just man upon earth that doeth good and sinneth not. 
Now, if there's not a just man that sinneth not, what about the unjust man? Right? It doesn't say, that Scripture doesn't say, there's not an unjust man upon earth that doeth good and sinneth not. It says there's not a just man upon earth that doeth good and sinneth not. So we have to recognize how far short of God's standard of righteousness men have fallen. Failing in this, he has fallen short of that which God requires. God requires perfect righteousness. Did you know that's the only ones that will be accepted by God? Is those that have perfect righteousness? You say, well, preacher, how can I have that? The Bible says that He hath made Him to be sin for us, Christ, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. So we'll have perfect righteousness. And God gives that to us. He gives that to us because of Christ's death and resurrection. And you read in the last verses of chapter 4 of Romans, you'll find that it says there that Christ was delivered for our offenses and He was raised for our justification. And then you read in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, after He's delivered for our offenses and raised for our justification, read in Romans 5, verse 1, Therefore, that connects you with that, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we're justified by faith. And that's why that we have perfect righteousness and we're accepted of God. The Bible tells us that we're accepted in the Beloved. The man who is completely an out-and-out sinner falls short of God's standard just as well as the man who is uh, uh, morally, morally good in the eyes of men and as we've been discussing. There's a difference in these two men in the degree of sin. But there's no difference in the fact of sin. The degree of sin may be different. But the fact of sin is another point. The fact of sin is that all have sinned, right? The degree of sin, some worse than others. That's why when little boys and girls or children come, they seem to be uh, more or less in the state of innocence. The degree of sin is not reached yet. But they, the fact of sin, they realize that Jesus died to save sinners and they realize that they're sinners. And they accept the Lord as Savior. And they may not even fully realize that. But they have some some sense of guilt in their, in their heart and they come accepting Christ. See, the degree of sin is different. That's why young people, they haven't gotten into the full fledge of uh, the mature, outright, out-and-out sinner. But they realize as they're growing older that, that there's sin around and sin within. And they accept Christ as their Savior. And that's why that you find someone that's hardened in sin, that they come and they know that they need to be delivered from all this because they're outright sinners. And there's no denying it to themselves or anyone else. And especially there's no denying it before God. And you have degrees of sin, don't you? But it's always the necessary uh, realization that there's a difference in the fact of sin and the both have sinned and come short of God's standards. Romans 3, verse 22 and 23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now then, we uh, continue with our thoughts here. We won't quite finish this because we have an outline of the priestly garments. Uh, is, well, let's just wait that on that for a minute and we'll try to conclude before we take those up in our next lesson. Let's just drop down a little bit. I'll give you an outline. 
uh, of what we're studying about. The victim for the sacrifice must be without blemish. We've talked about the, the offer, the one that offers, and we've talked about he's offering for sin, but then let's talk about how this has to process. The victim for the sacrifice must be without blemish. That is, the goat or the bullock or whatever. It could be a lamb. It had to be without spot and blemish. And if you, have, if you would have a man pay for your debt that, that you cannot pay yourself, <coughs> that man must have the means to pay the debt and set you free of debt. In other words, there must be a means for the, for the sacrifice, for the need. If I'm in debt, deeply in debt, and someone says, I'm going to pay, out, pay off your debt, he must have the means to do it. Or he couldn't do it. And so that's what we have in, in Christ. He had the means. His, his sacrifice was sufficient to pay off our sin debt. And if you would have someone meet the penalty of death that is against you as a sinner, that, that person himself must be free from the penalty of death himself. And Christ was free from the penalty of death, but He, took, he went through the penalty of death because He took our uh, debt upon Himself. And the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Someone against whom the law of righteousness had no claim. And the law of righteousness had no claim whatsoever on Jesus. He fulfilled it, didn't He? And on the basis of Christ's sinless perfection, the righteous government of God had no claim against Him. There was no claim against Christ. So, our Lord Jesus Christ comes forward and offers Himself a substitute for the sinner. We're the sinner that He gave Himself as our substitute. And thus, His offering, an offering of Himself, He offered Himself to pay our sin debt. And He did. He paid it in full. And He said, it is finished. Someone might say, well, I know that, that Jesus died for my sins, but... Uh, as you think of it a little bit, he, uh, he just paid part of it and I've got to pay the rest of it. You know, there's a lot of people think that way. Say, well, Jesus paid for my sins, but if I don't contribute some way to that debt that I owe as a sinner, well, then I'll, I'll have to pay for it some way or another. You can't pay for it. Jesus paid it. We sing the song, Jesus paid it what? All. All to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. And in the sin offering, the victim was the ceremonial substitute for the sinner. That's what it was in the Old Testament. And so Christ was the substitute for the sinner. Christ, the sinless one, the just one, took the place of the sinner, the unjust one. Peter says he died for our sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. That's 1 Peter 3, verse 18. And the blood of the sin offering was all poured out at the bottom of the altar. Remember, we read where it was poured out around that brazen altar. Christ did not spill His blood, as some have said. He poured it out. He forced it out and forced it to fall at the foot of the cross. And after the resurrection, Christ still had flesh and bone, but not flesh and blood. He said, Handle me and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bone as you see me have. He didn't say flesh and blood, did He? After the resurrection. Because He shed His blood. Christ poured all His blood out because He was the actual sin offering of which all other sin offerings were but shadows and pictures and types. And all the Old Testament shadows are fulfilled at the cross 
in that one sin offering that Jesus offered for our sins. The priest must take that blood and bear it within the veil into the most holy place. So Christ took His own blood as our great high priest and sprinkled it in on the mercy seat on high. Remember when we taught about the uh, uh, in the book of Gospel of John after the resurrection, and Jesus said to Mary Magdalene, "Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my Father. I go to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God." What was? Remember the lesson I taught there. He said, "Touch me not." He wanted to complete the work of the, applying that blood. I'm not saying literally. There's a lot of things that are not literal, but he wanted to present Himself in the presence of the Father in heaven as the fulfillment of what the priestly work was in the Old Testament and present His blood as sufficient for our atonement. And then the same day, He told the women. They came and held Him by His feet. Well, what made the difference? He had completed that work. That's what made the difference. And in some mysterious way, in some beyond our understanding, He completed everything that was prefigured there as far as our salvation is concerned. And as I say, we, we don't fully understand it, but it, if you study the Scripture, you'll find that's exactly what He said to Mary Magdalene. He says, touch me not. I'm not yet ascended to my Father. But go and tell the disciples. Well, we know He didn't ascend to a, a great while later after the resurrection. And when He ascended back, He sent the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. So there was something in that rebuke to her or his, his uh, staying, saying to Mary, touch me not, that was accomplished before the women came and held Him by the feet and worshipped Him. It tells us that too, doesn't it? There's something different there. And I don't say we understand it all. The victim must be taken outside the camp and burned to ashes. Remember, it was taken out to a place Christ also was taken outside the camp and suffered without the gate. You read that in Hebrews 13, verse 12. And outside of the gate or outside of the camp, the sin offering was set on fire and literally burned to ashes. And outside the gate of Jerusalem, they took our Lord Jesus Christ to a place called Calvary. They nailed Him to a Roman cross. Then there the fire of God's judgment fell upon Him. He cried out at one time, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The fire of God's wrath burned on him because he was bearing our sins that he represented there, our sins. I'll give you four scriptures if you want to write them down, and I won't have time to look them up for you. I mean, turn to them. But you'll find this is very important. Lamentations 1, verse 13. Psalm 88, verse 7. Psalm 88, verse 16. Two verses in Psalm 88 and Psalm 39, verse 10. And you'll find that that speaks of the fire of God's wrath and judgment that fell upon Him. Now, the relation of the individual offer to the sin offering. He must come before God and admit himself a sinner. That's what we have to do today. He must confess himself a sinner. Not because he's conscious of sin, but because God said he was a sinner. And he must confess himself before God as a sinner. And he must take his sacrifice that God has provided for him and offer it as his own personal sacrifice. Remember that the offer would take the victim and he'd offer it. 
as His own personal sacrifice. And He must lay His hand upon the victim's head and confess His sins and claim the victim as His individual substitute. That's what He did. We must claim Christ. The individual must accept Christ as His Savior. And, by the way, the individual would that would be saved must be saved in God's way. God says this is the way you have to do it. You have to accept that you have to accept Christ as your sin bearer, as your substitute, as your sacrifice. That's what all of us have done who have confessed Christ as our Lord and Savior. We've accepted Him as the one who paid the price for our sin. The twofold relation, and then we'll close with this, the twofold relation of the sin offering to the offerer. The blood within the veil where the priest had taken it told the offer that the sacrifice had been accepted on his behalf. When he took that blood in, it told that offer out there that that blood had been sacrificed, accepted. That blood of that sacrifice was accepted on his behalf. And the ashes outside the camp told the offer that the judgment of God for sin had fallen on the offering. He was all burned up. And as the offer looked and saw the wind blow these ashes away, he would know that the sin question between himself and God had been settled and his sin had been put away. That's what happened when Jesus died on the cross. He took our sins away. John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God which beareth away or taketh away, like the ashes blown away, the sin of the world. That's exactly what Jesus did when He died on the cross. Can you see those ashes, the wind blowing those ashes away? Nothing left. We use the same illustration by the scapegoat back there that was taken into the wilderness and let go. Remember, we studied that time and time again. Christ outside the camp, our sins are consumed to ashes on the cross. The wind of the Holy Spirit blows them away. Christ within the veil shows that His blood is a testimony that our sins have been forgiven. Forgiven here and blown away outside the camp. And all of these things are fulfilled in Christ. So the believer looks at the cross and sees the blood. And the ashes, as we know, that our sins have been taken away and that God says they're sins.